Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning, WCC. It's wonderful to see everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. And while you're turning, let me say this too. I sent out an email on Thursday, on Veterans Day, and I meant to say thank you to our veterans. Uh, We're just so thankful for you guys. I know Marcus, Gary, I'm sure there are others, but we're just thankful for your service and, and sacrifice. All right, Hebrews, the theme of Hebrews, as I keep saying every week, I try to remind us, is that Real faith in Jesus is a persevering faith. It's a faith that lasts until the very end. And so that's what the book of Hebrews is all about, the necessity of a persevering faith. And the author of Hebrews starts out his argument in chapter 1 by saying that you must hold fast to Jesus because Jesus is greater than anything else. So he first compares Jesus to the prophets, then to angels. That's kind of the section we're in now. And then later on, he compares Jesus to Moses and then to the Old Testament priests. Uh, And the author of Hebrews is saying this, you better not turn away from Jesus because if you do, you're turning away from the only way to be saved. You're turning away from God himself because Jesus is God. So last time I preached, we went through verse 6. So this morning, we're going to pick up with verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 1. And, and you remember, uh, the author is showing us that Jesus is superior to angels. And I would just say this, we always need to be reminded that we need a higher view of Jesus. We need an exalted view of the Lord Jesus, because that is what is going to keep us grounded and keep us in, in the faith and living a life that exalts the Lord. So we would need to keep exalting the Lord Jesus. All right, let's read. I'm going to read uh, Hebrews 1, verses 7 to 14, and then we'll walk through the passage, verse by verse. And I'm going to try to pick up the pace a little bit this morning. So Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 7, I'm going to read through 14. It says, of the angels, he says, God says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, he's talking about angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay, so that's the passage. Let's go through it verse by verse. In verse 7, he says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. In this section, the author gives us, in in chapter 1, the author gives us seven quotations from the Old Testament about Jesus. And this is one of those quotations. And this is a a quote from Psalm 104. And the author is describing angels here. And he's been talking about how awesome Jesus is, and now he starts talking about angels. And he says, God makes his angels winds 
and his ministers a flame of fire. So what he's saying is that angels are like flames of fire. That's another way of saying bolts of lightning. So if you think about the way that lightning goes across the sky, the speed of that, he's saying angels are fast, they are powerful. They're like bolts of lightning. And he says they're like winds, so they're like strong winds, like a tornado. So angels are these invisible creatures that do God's work. We, we don't see them, but they do God's work. You can read about them. I like First and Second Kings. There are passages when, like Elijah or Elisha, he prays that, that God would open up the eyes of his servant, and he looks around, and like the hill is just covered with these angels. So angels are around us, and they do God's bidding. They're fast like lightning. They're strong like wind. Um, but they're, they're servants. They're serving the Lord. And that's what he's saying here. After they finish their work, then they go to God. They go before the throne and they get their next assignment. Okay? So angels are awesome, but they're just servants. And then in verse 8, he says, but of the Son, this is the, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, but of the Son, God says, and so now he's comparing him to, to, to Jesus, the Son, God says, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is another one of those seven quotes from the Old Testament. This is Psalm 45, and this is a messianic psalm. It's an Old Testament psalm that was looking forward to the Messiah. So the author's been talking about angels. Again, now he's talking about God the Son. And this is awesome. It says, God is speaking. This is amazing. And look what it says. God the Father is speaking. And the Father says to his Son, your throne Oh, God is forever and ever. You see what's happening there? God the Father is addressing Jesus the Son, and he calls him God. He said, the Father says to the Son, your throne, O God. That is awesome. This is one of those places in the Scripture where it says that Jesus the Son is, he's directly called God. So Jesus the Son in the Old Testament was Yahweh. That's the, one of those Old Testament names for God. And Jesus is called Yahweh here. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is doing. So he's explicitly saying that, that Jesus is God. So the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's saying, so the Father is saying, Son, you yourself are God, and your throne is forever. In other words, your throne, your, your authority, your rule, your reign lasts forever and ever. As I said, this is, is Psalm 45. The Jewish people knew that this psalm was looking forward to the Messiah. It prophesied the coming of the Messiah. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's showing us that this prophecy about the Messiah is now fil- fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then he says, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The scepter is the, this thing in the, in the hand of a king. The scepter is like an ornamental Staff. The, you've probably seen movies or something where the king is holding this, this fancy staff with all this gold and ornamental stuff. Well, the king would use the scepter and he would basically give commands without even saying a word. He would just move the scepter. So if he wants to summon a person to come before, he would do like this. Or if he wants a person to be gone, he takes the scepter and moves it around. So it's showing that the power of the king, he can issue these orders or decrees without even saying a word, just, just moving this. And it says that, that Jesus' scepter is a scepter of uprightness, so righteousness. So Jesus' scepter, his, this symbol of authority, Jesus uses his scepter to do right. He rules in absolute righteousness. When sinful people get power, what do they do with it? They abuse it, right? When sinful people get power, they abuse it. 
But Jesus, in his kingdom, Jesus always uses his power, always uses his authority to do the right thing, to carry out righteousness. So this is what the author is saying here. And then in verse 9, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Jesus loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And you know what? It should be the same for us. We should love, as God's people, we should love righteousness and we should treasure goodness. We should treasure kindness and humility and all these fruit fruit of the Spirit. And we should hate wickedness, just like Jesus does. We shouldn't cherish wickedness in our hearts or in our minds. Then he says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So saying God the Father has anointed the Son with the oil of gladness. What does this mean? Well, the word anointed is important there. Jesus is the Christ. And we say Jesus Christ. And when I became a Christian, I didn't know what that meant. I was like, is that his last name? Like Jesus Christ. Like his dad is Joseph Christ and Mary Christ is a Christ family, Mr. and Mrs. Christ. That's not it. That's wrong, it turns out. So if you thought that, you were probably like me. You thought that, that's wrong. Christ is simply a word. It's the New Testament word, a Greek word for Messiah. And the word Messiah means anointed one. So that's all it means. So Christ, Messiah, anointed one. That's, that's what all these things go together. And what does anoint mean? Well, anoint, we don't hear that word a lot, but anoint means to symbolically place something. Place something or put something on. So to anoint in, in the Old Testament, oftentimes when a king was, when a person was made king, they would anoint the king with oil. So they were symbolically placing on him authority. So the Father has anointed Jesus as king. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ Messiah. He's anointed him with with power and kingly authority. So Jesus is is on the throne at the right hand of the Father. It says in verse 9 here that the Father anointed the Son with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I think what it means is Jesus has been anointed with this oil of gladness, this oil of joy. I think it's showing that, that there is a gladness, there is a joy in Jesus because, and the context is, because he loves righteousness and he's making things right. He loves righteousness and he is in his kingdom, he is producing righteousness. And in the end, he's going to make all things right. Therefore, he's been figuratively anointed with this, with this oil of gladness or this oil of joy. Jesus is going to make all things right. And he is a joyful king. He's not a dour king. He is a joyful king. All right, verse 10, it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. This is again talking about Jesus. So this is the sixth quotation from the Old Testament. This is from Psalm 102. And once again, I've talked about it before. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But the author is applying this to Jesus. And he's saying that Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth. Jesus is the son of God. Even before he became a man, he's existed for all eternity. He has no beginning and no end. He is God. And Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of heaven and earth. In verses 11 and 12, he says, They, the earth, he's talking about the earth and the heavens, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up, the heavens and the earth. Like a garment, they will be changed. In verse 12, he continues to say, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So what the, what the, the author of Hebrews is saying is that everything in the universe is aging and dying. 
everything in the heavens and on earth. Everything's getting older, including me, including me. For the record, my hairline did not look like this in high school, okay? I'm getting older. We're all getting older. Even the mountains and the stars and the sun and and the moon, they look like they're unchangeable. They don't look like they're changing, but they are. Everything is aging and getting older. Everything in the universe will perish. So the heavens and the earth will all wear out like a garment. He says it it just wears out like an old T-shirt. You ever had an old T-shirt? It just wears out and it's so thin, but you still love it. It just starts, just continues to wear thin. That's what he's saying about the universe, about the heavens and the earth. And, and what he says in verse 11 is Jesus is going to roll up the heavens like an old t-shirt and just toss it in the trash. And Jesus will do that with the universe before he makes it new, before he makes it new for his people. Then verse 12, he says, and he, he's talking about God, the son. And he says, he's talking about Jesus. He says, you are the same and your years will have no end. This is one of the most important characteristics of the, of the Lord. One, he, he, he remains, he will have no end, he has no beginning, and he has no end. Also, he remains the same. He says, you are the same. In fact, later on in Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, 8, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is unchanging. And to me, this is one of those comforting things for us because as God's people, we change all the time. When I look at pictures of my family 10, 20 years ago, when I look at pictures of my extended family when I was a kid 30, 40 years ago, things just change all the time. Also, we're fickle, right? We change our mind. We make a promise. We don't keep it. People turn on one another. Jesus is not like that. Jesus never changes. His character is constant. He is holy. He's eternal. He will never change. As I said, he has no beginning and no end. He doesn't change in the least bit. He doesn't get frail and weak. He doesn't get dementia and start forgetting things. He's unchanging. He's solid. And when he makes a promise, he keeps it always. So he's the anchor. Jesus is the rock we should build our lives on. He's the foundation. He's solid and steady. Okay, he's almighty, eternal, and unchangeable. And as I said, we as God's people should take great comfort in that. Verse 13, it says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So this final quotation is from Psalm 110. And in the New Testament, I think Psalm 110 is quoted more times than any other Old Testament passage. And it's saying that the Father is saying to Jesus, he says, sit at my right hand. This is this position of authority. And God never said that to an angel. So again, he's showing the supremacy of Christ. God the Father says only to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he is in the process of establishing his kingdom in full. And one day, all of his people will be brought into his kingdom. Not all of Jesus' people are yet into his kingdom, but they're coming. They're all coming. And one day he's going to bring all his people into his kingdom, and then he will conquer all his enemies. And the last enemy to be conquered is death, death itself. So the picture is this, this uh, enemy is a footstool for your feet thing. This is a picture of a king. Back then, a king would conquer another king, and they would literally take the defeated king and put him on the ground, and the the victorious king would put his foot on the neck of the defeated king, like he's a footstool. And that's a picture of the king conquering the defeated king. 
And so what the author is telling us is that Jesus is the conquering king. He's going to conquer everything. He's a champ, and every one of his enemies will be like a footstool under his feet, like an ottoman. You know, you sit on the couch, you got an ottoman. All his enemies are going to be like just places where he can rest his feet. And angels don't do this, obviously. And then in verse 14, the author of Hebrews tells us about angels. And he says, are they, are angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So it says angels are ministering spirits. This is a great description of angels. They're ministering spirits. They're sent out from God to serve those of us who will inherit salvation. Angels serve us. They minister to us. So angels serve God's people. They protect us. They do unseen work around us because God has commanded them. So angels are awesome. The bottom line is angels are awesome. But Jesus is way superior to angels because Jesus is divine. Jesus is God himself. All right, now we come to chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 to 4. And again, we'll walk through this. This is an important point. And what the author has done, he's been talking about how awesome Jesus is in chapter 1. And then he starts out, at least the ESV, which I have, the first word is therefore. So now he's applying what he's just taught you. So he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What I love about this is you can tell that the guy writing Hebrews is a pastor who cares. He cares immensely to the, to, about his listeners. He's not content just to give them facts about Jesus and then just leave it there. He says, now that you know this all about Jesus, you've got to apply it. You've got to apply these truths to your life. And that's why he begins with the word, therefore. So he says, therefore, he said, because of all I've just said about Jesus, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So he's saying, pay attention. I've just shown you that Jesus is God. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the great high priest who laid down his life as a substitute for his people. He's the king of the universe who sits on the throne. And so all of us better pay attention to what we've just heard from God. And I would say just as a reminder, as God's people, we're called to pay attention to his word, the Bible. We're called to pay attention. We're called to think about it. Do you ever just take, open your Bible, put down your phone. It's my encouragement to myself too. Put down your phone, open up your Bible, read, and just think about a verse. Just pay attention. That's what the, the writer is saying here, to pay attention. And then what that means is submit to it and change if there's areas that need to change. And the reason we're commanded to do this, and he says it right here, is so we don't drift away. Drifting away. Think about it. This is an awesome phrase to think about. It's a powerful picture. Picture someone in a little rowboat going down the stream or something in a, in a tube. You know, people go tubing. Picture someone in a tube just floating down the stream, drifting away. That's the picture, just going with the flow. They, and what the, the writer is saying, the people are drifting away, drifting away from Christ, from the church, from the faith. How? What do you have to do when you're an inner tube to drift down the river? What do you have to do? You have to do nothing. That's right. 
The way you drift away from Christ is by doing nothing. And that's the warning that he's given here. People that drift away, they just float on the currents of the culture. They flow, they allow the currents of this world to just gently take them away. And it's a scary thought. It's a scary thought because we're talking about eternity here. Most people, in my observation, most people who leave the church, who leave the faith, they don't have some dramatic moment where they say, you know what, today I'm an atheist. I've never met anybody like that. I know there are some. I've never met personally anybody that does that. Most of the people that drift away or that leave the faith, it's very subtle. They do. They drift away, like the author's saying here. They, for example, they move. I've seen this. They move to a different area. They don't make much of an effort to find a church, and they, they never darken the doors of a church again. When the kids leave home, things change, and they just find themselves kind of sleeping in on Sundays or doing other things. They find they're not reading their Bibles and not praying. They, they just, it's a slow process, but it's a drifting away. And the author of Hebrews is giving us a, a sober warning right here. Verse 2, he says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, so he says, pay attention. He says, for, sin, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Okay, I'm going to stop there. When it says the message declared by angels, what this is talking about is when God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel on Mount Sinai. There are places in Scripture that say that the Lord was accompanied by angels when he brought the Old Testament down, when he brought the, the Ten Commandments down. So he's saying that when the Old Testament law was brought to Israel, he was accompanied by angels. Again, the, the audience thought a big deal about angels. But he's saying that Jesus is superior. So he says that, that if this message brought by angels was so important, and you Jew, he's writing to Jewish people, you, you, you know this is important, how much more should you pay attention to the message brought by the Son of God? Right? Then he says in the Old Testament, he uses this phrase, and every transgression received a just retribution. So he says every transgression, every violation of God's law, every act of disobedience was punished justly in the Old Testament. You know what? It's the the same in the New Testament. Every violation of God's law must be punished. God is a just judge. He must punish. The author is showing that that breaking God's law is not a trivial thing. Breaking God's law is an act of disobedience. and It's an act of, you could say, cosmic treason against God when we break his law. And think about it. A just judge must punish evil, right? If you have a, what if you have a, a case before a judge and the judge just says, well, I know that these terrible things were done, but we're just going to ignore it. We're just going to wink at it and let it go. That's not a just judge. A just judge must punish. And, and so what the author is saying is that God must punish sin. And as I said, even the new covenant, even in the new covenant, God must punish sins. Now, the good news of the gospel is this. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then Jesus has already received in himself that punishment when he went to the cross. That's the good news. Sin must be punished, but Jesus went to the cross and he took it upon himself. So that for those of us who are in Christ, that condemnation is gone now. It's already been placed on Christ. So there's no condemnation. The punishment has already taken place. Okay? So the author of Hebrews is saying to his Jewish audience, you know God's law. You know that those who violate God's law are punished. 
And he's saying, and now are you going to ignore the message of salvation given to us directly from the Son of God? Jesus has given us his gospel. He's given us his good news that, that salvation only comes through him. And he's, the author's saying, are you going to ignore this now? And he says, if you ignore this wonderful news about salvation, if you neglect it, if you drift away, he's saying, the question is, do you think you'll be able to escape? Do you think you're going to be able to escape? And, that, and then he starts talking about the gospel message. I'm going to come back to the, the escape part. Verses 3 and 4 he says, it, the, go- the gospel message of salvation, was declared at first by the Lord. So it was declared at first by the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. And it says it was attested to us by those who heard, who heard the good news, who heard the gospel. So this is talking about the apostles. So they heard firsthand Jesus' teaching. And this is one of the reasons why I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, by the way, because Paul always said, I received my message directly from the Lord. I didn't receive it from anybody else. But the writer here is saying, we received it. We received the message from the apostles. Then in verse 4, he says, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is so important. I I want you to think really closely about this. Maybe you have not given much thought about Jesus. And maybe you think that this, you know what? I wasn't around when Jesus was on earth. I never saw him. I never heard him teach. So why should I believe in Jesus? It's a good question, right? Why, why should, if you, you, nobody here saw Jesus, why should you believe him? Well, the author of Hebrews objects, addresses this objection, and he makes a logical argument here, and he says the message of Jesus, he says, was confirmed, or that means, or attested to those who heard him. In other words, there were eyewitnesses, There were eyewitnesses to what Jesus did, and you should listen to them, and you should believe them. I would say this, too, if if you think about it. Almost everything that we believe is because someone told us this. Almost every single thing that we believe is because someone told us something, and we believe it. Right? Why why do you think that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Were you there? Is anybody there? Just a couple people in the back. No. Uh, no, nobody was there, right? So why do you believe that George Washington was the first president? Because someone told you that and you believed it. Why do you think you know your own birthday? Do you remember that? Do you remember that traumatic event <laughs> of your being born? No. Why do, you, why do you think you know your own birthday? Because your parents told you that and you believed it. Are you stupid to believe that? No, it's It's right. When honest, good people tell you something, it's good to believe it, right? This is just a logical thing. Well, this is a fact. There were lots of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus and the apostles perform miracles. They were honest people. They were even willing to die for it before they denied it. Okay, this is, this is really important. And this is how I came to faith in Jesus, by the way, through, through talking about proofs for the faith. These people saw Jesus perform miracles, they talked about them, and they started writing them down, and they started telling other people about them. And through the miracles, God was providing evidence that Jesus' teachings were true and that Jesus was from God the Father. The miracles were proving that the long-awaited Messiah was here. That's what the miracles were doing. That's what it says when it says God bore witness by signs, wonders, and miracles. God provided evidence through miracles. When Jesus preached the gospel, he performed many miracles, 
showing that his message was true. In fact, Jesus said this, and if you're not a Christian, think about this. Jesus said in John 10, 37 and 38, he said, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, if I'm not doing miracles, then don't believe me. Okay? So he said, if I'm not doing these miracles, don't believe me. But then he said this, but if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Of all the major religions in the world, Christianity is the only one where a man claims to be God. And I think God knew that that would be hard for us to believe, so he gave us miracles to, to show that this is true, to prove that Jesus is divine. Think about some of Jesus' miracles. There was a guy who was born blind. Think about if a guy born blind. He's never seen before. Jesus takes some mud, puts it on his eyes, and tells the guy to go wash While the guy is walking to go wash the mud off, Jesus works on the molecular level in the guy's eyes and makes him see. The guy washes off the mud and he can see. He has perfect vision. Okay? Jesus raised people from the dead. Many times Jesus, he did this more than once. There was a little girl who died. Jesus raises her from the dead. Have you ever seen a friend or family member in a casket? You ever seen that? Imagine Jesus raising that person up from the dead. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. He was in the tomb for days. His body was rotting and decaying. And Jesus says in a word, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And that dead body comes to life. That dead body stands up. Now he's alive. Lazarus hears Jesus' voice, comes walking out of that tomb alive. The greatest miracle that Jesus did was his own resurrection. They nailed Jesus to the cross. He bled out for hours. Then he died this gruesome death. They wrapped up his body. They put him in a tomb. They covered it with a big stone. And even his own followers thought that they'd never see him again. They thought he was dead. And then the unexpected happened. On that Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the grave. He appeared to his disciples. He ate with them. He talked with them. Then he ascended into heaven. And one day he's coming back, and he's going to raise his people. And we're going to have physical resurrected bodies like Jesus, okay? And we'll see our Lord face to face. So think about that. All these honest people saw these miracles. They saw the miracles of the apostles. They wrote them down. This is proof that Christianity is true. So I would just say, what are you going to do with this? Like, how do you respond to this? And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying back in verse 3. He says, you know all of this is true. You've heard these accounts of the miracles. You know this is, this is proof. And then he asks this question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. I want you to think about two words in here. Escape and salvation. Salvation is a noun for a verb. You know what verb it is? It's saved. So think about two words here. Escape and saved. And my question is this. Escape from what? Escape. Saved from what? The author has already given us a clue earlier. Remember when he said that every transgression must be punished? Every transgression must be punished by God? So when he's talking about escaped from what or saved from what, he's talking about the judgment of God. He's talking about being saved from hell. Now, I've said this before, and I'll probably say it many times before. I don't like talking about the judgment of God. I'm just being honest. I just don't like talking about it. I don't, and I don't talk about this every time I preach. In fact, I've thought about it. It's kind of rare, really, comparatively. But I don't enjoy thinking about the judgment of God. I don't enjoy thinking about God's wrath and hell. But I have an obligation to preach the truth. 
I have an obligation to do that. And here in that passage, the author of Hebrews is clearly saying, if you neglect the only message of salvation, if you neglect the gospel, he's saying, do you think you're going to escape from the judgment of God? That's the question he's asking. If you reject Jesus, who is God himself, if you reject this Jesus, do you really think you're going to escape from hell? That's the question he's asking. Now, I would say this. Nowadays, hardly anyone hears sermons like this. Back in years past, centuries past, people would hear sermons. But hardly any hears, anyone hears even questions like this anymore. How, we, how should we escape? People aren't used to hearing that. But as you can see, it's in the Bible, right? It's in the Bible, and I have an obligation to, to preach what the Bible says. Now, sadly, there are lots of churches. There are lots of wonderful churches, but there are also lots of churches around the world that will never talk about the judgment of God. And the reason is simple. It's the fear of man. They're afraid of the scorn of others. They don't, people, pastors like me, we don't want to be seen as ignorant Bible thumpers, right? We don't want to be seen as hellfire brimstone. You know, that's for just idiotic people. Pastors want to be seen as cool and smart and everything else. So they stay away from this. They don't like the scorn of people. But here's the problem. If you remove the teaching about the judgment of God, if you remove the teaching about the just wrath of God, if you take that away, if you remove hell, then people start asking good questions like this. If there's no judgment and there's nothing to escape from, if there's nothing to be saved from, why do I need a Savior? If if there's nothing to be saved from, why do I need a Savior? If you take away the judgment of God, you also begin to ask this question. Why did God the Father send his son to die a gruesome death on the cross? It makes no sense. When you take away the judgment of God, then Jesus dying on the cross makes no sense. It begins to sound like cosmic child abuse. That's what happens when you take away the judgment of God. The cross makes no sense. And what you see when you study church history, you see this time and time again. It happens every time. When churches and denominations, they go down a certain path often. They go down a path where, first of all, they minimize the judgment of God. Then they downplay the judgment of God. Then they just totally ignore it. They never talk about it. And then they actually deny it. They say, is it even there? And what happens every single time is when God's judgment is ignored or denied, then the price Jesus paid on the cross is not understood. And his cross is then minimized. And folks in those churches, here's what happens. I want you to think about what the author of Hebrews is saying. Folks in those churches find that they just don't have much interest in Jesus anymore. And they start drifting away. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is warning against, the danger of drifting away. And that's why churches and denominations that ignore the judgment of God, those churches just die. They always die. They don't survive because their people simply don't see the need of a Savior. Again, why would you need a Savior if there's nothing to be saved from? Again, I don't get a kick out of talking about God's judgment. But the fact is God is holy, and he is just, and his judgment is real. And in fact, the the entire message of Christianity, the entire message of God's love, is founded upon an understanding of the holiness of God and the justice of God. Listen, God is holy, and we are not. None of us. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you're thinking, are you saying that I'm bad, I'm worse than everybody else, and that's why I'm going to, that's why I'm under the judgment of God? I'm not saying that at all. 
we're all under, we all should be under the judgment of God. We all should be. But the good news of Jesus is that he has already received that in himself. But as I said, if you take that away, then the good news of Jesus is, is without understanding. You can't understand the good news until you understand the bad news, right? you got to know the bad news. And what the author is saying is, without Jesus, we have no hope of escaping. But God gives us warnings like this. He didn't have to give us warnings, but he does because he's gracious. And the warnings God gives us in his word, like here in Hebrews 2, they must be preached if we're going to be faithful to the Lord. So preaching about God's judgment, one of the things it does, it warns those who are rejecting him. But preaching about God's judgment also does this. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, it reminds us of what we're saved from. When we think about what our sins deserve, when we think about the price Jesus paid, when we think about the cross, when we're reminded of these things, we remember just how amazing God's love is, how amazing his grace is. And our hearts well up in praise and thankfulness because he loves us so much. When I think about God, what God saved me from, and the path that I was going down, the rebellion that I was in against the Lord, I don't know why he saved me. I would not have saved me. I've said that before. I was filth. I was in rebellion against the Lord. And I deserved I deserved his judgment. And instead he gave me his grace and his love. If the Holy Spirit, listen, if the Holy Spirit has given you spiritual life, then you have at least some idea of how guilty you are before God. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you know you deserve God's judgment. We deserve hell, and yet our God has given us heaven. We deserve judgment, but he's given us his love. And I don't think we appreciate what an amazing gift God has given us. I don't think we appreciate it enough when he saved us. And we don't have enough appreciation for what an awful price our Lord Jesus paid on the cross to bring us us salvation if we just ignore judgment. And we will never know, we will never know how much our Savior loves us if we forget what he saved us from. And so to our non-Christian friends, I would just say this, please hear me, God freely saves the lost. The Father loves saving the lost. He loves it. And the Father has promised, the Father has promised to forgive all those who believe in his Son. He's promised to forgive everyone who believes in Jesus. And you know what? God can't lie. He's made a promise and he can't lie. So my encouragement is turn in faith to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn to him in faith and receive his love and forgiveness. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Thank you for your love for us. I do pray, Lord, that for those of us who are in Christ, we would think more often just about what our sins deserve. And in response, we would, our hearts would just well up in praise and thankfulness to you for how gracious and loving you are. So help us with that, we pray. And for our, our non-Christian friends, especially those who are here, I pray that they would see how gracious and loving and kind you are. Please help them with that, Lord. So help them to see the love and grace that is found only in Christ. So we praise you and love you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the folks here this morning. Bless us. Let us be faithful to you. Let us continue 
in the faith and, and, and not drift away. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.